Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. And my text today is another rather brief one, but it is of vast importance for our everyday lives. Much of our waking hours are spent working. And this passage will instruct us how we might go about serving Christ in our work. And Paul has been speaking about how God has saved us through Jesus Christ at great cost. And now that Christ has saved us, he is teaching us how to live as his children in this fallen world. In the second half of Ephesians, that has been Paul's focus. He has started with our hearts, with our character, and then he moves on to our relationships. We've heard how Christians ought to live as wives and as husbands and as, as children and as parents. And now this morning, he addresses slaves and masters. This includes our roles as employers and employees. As you know, work covers a lot of our lives, so how does the gospel influence the way we work? How does it affect our work relationships? That's part of what the passage will be teaching us this morning. This is God's Word. Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Amen. This passage has much to teach us about our work lives and our work relationships, but we will miss some of what this passage is teaching if we just narrow it down to terms of work. For this passage brings us back into a world that is thankfully removed from our lives today. It brings us back to a situation that faced tens of millions of people back in the Roman Empire in Paul's day when this letter was written. You see, Paul does not address this passage to employees and employers. It was addressed to slaves and masters. And we must deal with the text as it is. We must consider this actual situation that Paul is addressing if we are to understand it correctly. And there's something rather striking about it if you stop and think about it. Paul is addressing slaves and slave owners. And he is not writing to society. He is writing to the church that is in Ephesus. 
Paul expects that as this letter is read to the church in Ephesus, all of these groups of people will be there. Wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, slave owners in church. Can you imagine that? If there were slave owners at East Bridge, or slaves at East Bridge, worshiping together, eating the Lord's Supper together, calling each other brothers. It is shocking, isn't it? It is a difficult passage to deal with. And yet this was the situation of the church at Ephesus. It was the situation of the church all over the Roman Empire. And that's one of the amazing things about the early church. It was very diverse. It was reaching every area of society. There were Jews and Gentiles together, men and women together, Roman soldiers, merchants, rulers, wealthy, poor, slave, and free, all, all together worshiping the Lord. For he is the Lord of all. So the early church had many slaves, for slavery was extremely common in the Roman Empire. It is estimated that between one-fifth to one-third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Many of these slaves were cruelly treated. You might be surprised, though, that the opportunities there were many opportunities and roles that were possible within Roman slavery. It's not how we might imagine it here in America so much. Many slaves worked in accounting, education, music. I think most people who worked in medicine were slaves. Slaves often had opportunities to purchase their own freedom. And you might recall in Acts, at one point, Paul was under the authority of the ruler Felix who himself had been a slave earlier before he became a free man and became quite powerful. Oftentimes, slaves would purchase their freedom and then go on to become more wealthy than their former masters. And although Roman slavery was usually better than, say, American slavery, Paul warned against becoming a slave and advised slaves to become free if legally possible. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So Paul does not look at slavery and uh, the institution of slavery in the same terms he looks at the institution of the family or of marriage. God created marriage. God called Adam and Eve to have children. Slavery was not his command. Slavery is not right. Paul addresses people who are in slavery, encouraging them 
to get out of it if they can. But if they can't, remember that they are still free in the Lord. And he reminds everyone who is free that you are slaves of Christ. The truth is that every one of you is a slave. One way or another, you were not meant to be a little God. You cannot be a little God even if you would like to be. Either you are the slave of sin and of Satan, or you are the slave of God. But it is the most freeing thing to be a slave of God. Christ's burden is very light. He is the greatest master to follow. And you cannot bear the burden of being a little God. You cannot take care of yourself. It is beyond you. You need a heavenly Father to watch over you. That is where true freedom is, to be being Christ's slave. So we are we all have similar circumstances in some way, that we have some master that we are to follow. And yet we are also Christ's free man if you belong to Christ. Now Paul does not address Paul is not in this passage trying to create the blueprint for the perfect society. He is not calling for the abolition of slavery. Neither is he calling for the continuation of it. Slavery as an institution is not his topic at all. His focus is rather on our hearts and the resulting con conduct that flows from our hearts. The question is, how are you to live in a Christ-honoring way in the situations that you find yourself in in this fallen world? Slavery existed in great numbers in Ephesus and in the Roman world. Paul is not trying to change society, not, not writing Plato's Republic, which is a weird society anyway, if you read that, but he's, he's not trying to write out blueprint for society. He's telling us how to live as God's children in a fallen world. That is his question. His central concern is not freedom from man, but freedom from sin. And as you might notice, though, the fact that they become Christians does not undo their human relationships. Married people are still married after they become Christians. Slaves who became Christians are not automatically free from their masters here. Those relationships remain. The great question is how we ought to live as believers where we are in this life. You see this too in Jesus' teaching. He does not call for revolution or for political reform. He has not come to overthrow the Romans. He has come to overthrow Satan's kingdom. He has come to destroy the works of the devil, to plunder his house. He has come to set captives free, those who are captive to sin. His kingdom, he said, was not of this world. So, as in his teaching, he tells his followers how to be his followers in a corrupt world. Israel wasn't really free 
in Jesus' day. It didn't belong to themselves. They belonged to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, you can think of in kind of concentric circles. Armies were not founded in Rome, usually, unless you're Julius Caesar and you come in. But outside of that, there were the provinces outside of Rome that were loyal to Rome. And on the edges of the empire were those provinces that were least loyal. And they required standing armies to maintain their control over these provinces on the fringes. This includes Israel. So Israel would have soldiers, Roman soldiers, going through it, keeping things under their control. They grew up in Jesus' day watching soldiers run around on their lands, telling them what to do, making them pay taxes, watching them build, say, in Caesarea Maritima, a temple to the Caesar Augustus. They did not like this. And then they, there were humiliating rules that came along. One you've, you've probably heard an allusion to in the Sermon on the Mount. A Roman soldier could legally force a random person on the street to carry their heavy military equipment or whatever it was down the road for one mile. After this, they would have to let you go. They could call someone else to carry their stuff another mile down the road. And so in this way, the Roman army could travel quite quickly down the road. But it would be an annoying nuisance if you were trying to do your job or laboring in the field and some Roman soldier, you don't even want there to begin with, calls you and says, you, come here, carry my stuff, let's go. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone forces you to carry, to walk with them one mile, go with them two. That's the background to this command. So now, you're, when you do that, they would wonder, what are you doing? You don't have to go another mile. So anybody would have to go one mile, but when you go the second mile, they would know something is different. Why would you do this? That you are different. And so this, this is related to our passage here. Um, Jesus' teaching is very practical. We live in a fallen world, complete with military occupation, oppression. We live in a world that has horrible things like slavery. Scripture teaches us how the gospel applies to these horrible situations. It, it does apply in every situation. It teaches us how to live godly lives in a fallen world. We, you see, are to be different. We have a freedom that cannot be taken away regardless of your condition. That should be a comfort to all of us who find ourselves in an unpleasant situation. We don't have legal slavery here in America anymore. But we do have sometimes unpleasant working conditions. We have oppressive bosses. Although we are not slaves, you have sold a certain amount of your time yeah, for your employers to serve them, to work for them for a certain length of time each day. That is not slavery. I'm not trying to compare it to slavery. But 
If what Paul teaches here applies to slavery, it certainly applies to our regular work as well. So what does Paul command here? First, it's not run away, it's not rebel, but slaves be obedient. The most striking thing is that, not that he urges obedience, but how the slave is to obey. And how that work relates to Christ. You'll notice we have five verses in our passage. The first four talk about slaves. The last one is addressed to masters. All speak, every single verse speaks of Jesus Christ. So it's not just two groups that we're looking at. We're looking at slaves and masters in the relationship to Christ. In all of it. So the slaves work the slave is to obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. You see, everything is put in the context of Christ's lordship because he is lord of all. Nothing in your life is neutral then. Of all kinds of, all kinds of people, no matter how high, no matter how low, he is over them. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he is to be Lord, therefore, of every area of your life, your marriage, your family, your work, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whether you are the president, whether you are a slave, you are to work as for Christ. In Colossians 3, 23 and 24, a parallel passage to this, Paul wrote to slaves, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. Then to emphasize it again, he says this, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. That is the fundamental thing to grasp here. In your work, whether you are retired, whether you are an adult, whether you are a child, in your work, you serve the Lord. I want you to notice, Paul is not writing here to pastors, or missionaries, or workers in mercy ministry. He is speaking to slaves. So, you see, we must put away from our minds forever the idea that only pastors or missionaries do work that's really important, eternally important. Not at all. All work is spiritual. Or do not think, well, my work is only important if I use some of the money to support a missionary, or if I witness to people at work. No, if you do a job where no one sees it, and it feels like it's not important, still, God sees it. The way you work is part of your Christian witness. And even if no one ever sees it, God sees it. All work is service to the Lord. It can be if you do it to please Him. In your work, you serve the Lord. It is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of your inheritance. This is wonderful news if you are a slave. Imagine for a moment you were a slave in the Roman Empire. You have a heart for the Lord. You hear of the news of the church growing all over the place. Maybe you wish you could do that. You don't have the freedom. 
you're doing some lowly, menial, humiliating task. And you feel like you cannot serve the Lord in it. Maybe you feel like you're in school doing homework that you do not enjoy at all and it's meaningless. Maybe you are in a job that you feel doesn't fulfill you. It's not changing the world that you hoped. In a way that you hope. This is good news though. You can serve God in the way that you do your work. Whether you're changing diapers, washing dishes, cleaning your room, whatever it is, teaching, designing, building, repairing, selling, it is possible to do it for the Lord, as unto the Lord. Even lowly tasks then are raised up to the heavens and can be God-honoring. Just like the widow gave her two points and it was all she had, in God's eyes she gave more than those who are rich. She did it unto the Lord. So it is likewise possible for a slave or someone working in a lowly, unimpressive job to do their work in a way that brings more glory to God than someone who is in some high position in society, some king or president who does their work in a lazy way. And Paul expresses this teaching in many ways. He notes in verse 5 that you are to obey your masters according to the flesh. That is, they're outwardly your masters, but you have another master, a heavenly one. Verse 6, it says that they are slaves of Christ. And so the work you are to do is to be done with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, not because your master, your earthly master is so good, but because ultimately you are serving Christ, who sees your heart and who is worthy to be feared. You might object, you might say, you've never met my boss, though. If you met my boss, you wouldn't be saying this. He doesn't deserve hard work. That might be true. But you see, it doesn't matter. His character is irrelevant. You are a Christian. You are who you are, and the way you do what you do is not dependent on someone else. It is because you are a Christian that you work the way you do. You are to serve your boss well, not because of who he is, but because of who you are. So you are to do your work heartily as to the Lord because you are a Christian. Sometimes this is known as the Protestant work ethic that we see not this great division between the clergy and the laity. We see that all of our life is spiritual. All of our life is God's world. It's in God's world. It's God whom we serve. We do it well. Also, people came to John the Baptist, you might remember. They became Christians. And uh, they asked even soldiers, what should I do? He did say, stop being a soldier. He said, stop oppressing people. With Martin Luther, too, one person came to Martin Luther. He was a cobbler, sold shoes. And he asked Luther, now become a Christian. What should I do? And Luther said, Make good shoes 
and sell them at a fair price. Now, we're not called necessarily to abandon our work the moment we become Christians, but we do our work well. We, we do it fairly. So regardless of your, your boss, you should, your work should be sincere from the heart with goodwill for the Lord. Paul adds, you are not to render eye service as man pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. You know this, that some people, when they're working, and the boss goes out of the room, pull up Tetris or whatever, I don't know if people play Tetris anymore, but you know, do whatever it is they're doing. And then when the boss comes by, minimize that window, and they're back to work very quickly. You know, we're cleaning your room, and you know, only when mom or dad comes by, and then you're very busy for an hour cleaning up a few toys somehow. We are not to, to work in this way. If you consider that your master in heaven sees everything that you do, this means that you shouldn't speed up your work when the boss comes into the room and slow down when he's gone. For we serve the Lord. He sees everything. So you are not to fear man. You are certainly not to fear man more than you fear the Lord. Don't let someone's opinion be more to you than the opinion of Jesus. Imagine what if Jesus was there in your office watching what you did. Would he be pleased with the way you're working? The same reason no bonus should inspire you to work any better, for you should already be doing your best because you seek to please the Lord. It's not the way we see it in our society. Usually in our society, you pay somebody just enough so they won't quit. And you work just hard enough so you won't get fired. Or get that just get that promotion. We don't really want to be there. You, you live for the weekend. You live for the vacation with the time off. God is telling us not to, to live in this way. Now, if you work really hard, you might earn the scorn of your co-workers because your light exposes the darkness, so be it. It may also cause your co-workers or your boss to wonder, what causes this person to be so different? Imagine, too, you are a slave owner. It's a horrible thought. But imagine you had two slaves. One was a Christian, one was a non-Christian. One did their work just to get by. One did their work hardly, not getting paid anything. And you would wonder, again, like the person who carries your stuff for two miles, what is different about this person? Why does this person act this way? Why does this person turn the other cheek when have insulted? Why does this person love me their enemy? So it might end up leading them to the Lord. That is not the main point here. It is not to bring your boss to the Lord, to bring your owner to the Lord. Whether or not anyone is brought to the Lord, whether or not anyone ever notices, God notices. God is pleased. 
Your work is for the Lord, and your inheritance is from the Lord. No matter how you are mistreated, no one can take that no word away. Isn't that a comfort? A reward for slaves. An inheritance for slaves. Now, in earthly terms, slaves never earn anything or inherit anything, but not so for the Christian slave. You serve the Lord, but whatever good anyone does, Paul says, you will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, verse 8. Some of you may be employers. Paul says, comparatively blessed to you, so therefore I will as well this morning. But he does remind you, too, that everything you do and the way you do it is also under the Lordship of Christ, the all-seeing eye of Jesus. If you are a, a, a boss, remember you have a master in heaven, and thus you are also a slave. More than that, it says you are a fellow slave with your slave. Master, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he was both their master and yours is in heaven. That puts you on somewhat equal footing. You both stand before the Lord under his authority. It doesn't matter if you are an employee or an employer. There is no partiality with him. He won't treat you better just because you have a higher position, rather. He treats those in authority more strictly than those who are under authority. His judgment comes down harder on teachers, on those who lead people astray, on those who oppress. And that should bring fear to you as well. Know that God's ear is especially turned to the poor and the oppressed, and he hears when they cry out to him. Treat your employees so well that it is a joy to work for you. They are not one bit less valuable than you are. All throughout our worship service today, we have been singing about God, not just in his majesty. He is the master of all. But we have also been reminded that he became the servant of all. That he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is what is pictured in the Lord's Supper that we are about to partake in. Jesus Christ knows what it's like to be a master. Jesus Christ was the suffering servant as well. He came down, he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in the form of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been servant and is Lord. If you are a master, you have a wonderful model, the perfect model. 
in Jesus Christ. You see how he led his disciples. You see how he served them, how he took up the basin and the towel. If you are a servant, you have a perfect bond with Jesus as well. A suffering servant. Treat, so if you are an employer, treat your employees, love your employees as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not threaten them. Treat them with respect. God gives you no power or authority that is not subject to the law of love. You, God has placed employees under your authority. You have that authority. You have rights. Yes, but they have rights too. And those rights become your obligations. You, they owe you a fair day's work. You owe them also fair day's wage. You owe them also you are equally debtors to one another. Both of you should seek to please the Lord, not simply how you work, but how you treat one another in your work. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. No matter what your work is, you serve the Lord. He is Lord of all. Serve in such a way that it will bring a smile to your Savior's face. He is a good master. No one who ever served him ever lost their rule. Treat one another with love and do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than for men. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve and from whom you will receive the reward of your obedience. That's right. Lord, we ask that you would reform us in the way we labor. We, we are lazy. Sometimes we work too hard for the wrong reasons. We ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us compassion for those who we work with. Help us, Lord, to be a blessing to everyone around us in our workplace. Help us to honor you even when no one else is watching. If we are employees, Lord, help us to be the best employee. Others will see our good work and glorify you in heaven. If we are employers, Lord, help us to be a blessing and a joy to work for. Help us help others to see who would appear different. Help us to be different. Glorify you. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved us, not as a result of our hard work, but we know that we are guilty. Thank you for becoming the servant of all to save, to ransom the lost. In Jesus' name we pray.